Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Leanne Kemp, founder and CEO of Everledger. Everledger is the digital transparency company providing technology solutions to increase transparency in global supply chains. Their mission is to provide visibility on environmental standards in complex value chains. Major players in the diamond industry, for example, are increasingly committed to providing further evidence and taking real action regarding their responsible business practices, in particular around positive environmental footprint. And this is where Everledger comes in. In this episode, we talk about the origin story for the company. We talk about these opaque industries where there isn't a lot of transparency or visibility around supply chains, how products are getting built, what labor practices are employed, what carbon and environmental footprints occur, etc. We also talk about Everledger's solution, what makes it possible, the role of blockchain in powering it. We talk about where it fits into the broader landscape, the big consulting firms that are providing consulting in these areas. We talk about other competitive products, and we talk about what makes Everledger different. And of course, we talk about where they are on their journey, their progress to date, their goals over the next year or two, and if they're successful... 10 years out, 20 years out, what have they achieved? I enjoyed this one, and I hope you do as well. Leanne, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason, how are you? Good to be connected. I'm doing okay, hanging in there, still waiting with bated breath to see how this Omicron stuff plays out and how much of the world is going to get shut down again. I sure hope it doesn't come to that. Not the best feeling heading into the holidays, to be honest. Yeah, look, being from Australia, I left there in May, and for me, I just have this sink-like water. So let's see how it goes. Let's be fluid and a glass half full instead of half empty. We live with hope. 
Yeah, we were chatting a little bit before we hit record, and you definitely seem to be cool as a cucumber. I, I should hang around with people like you because I don't know how many people would describe me in a similar way. Being an entrepreneur and a serial one at that, sometimes it's two hands on the steering wheel and no airbag and then just keep running until it's down to empty. So yeah, pretty cool. What is Everledger? We can just take it from the top. Sure. Look, Everledger started in the heart of London in 2015, and I'm the founder and the CEO of the company today. We began by asking a pretty simple question. Where does it come from? Whether it is a diamond ring or a piece of steak on my plate or even an electric vehicle in a car, that question, of course, racks the minds of many consumers in the world, but there's been no platform of provenance that's ever really been built. We have ERP systems and marketplaces and procurement software, but we don't necessarily have a technology that can connect and combine or build a network across the world to simply ask that question. And pretty much that's where Everledger began. We started in 2015 in the heart of London, and we thought we'd tackle some of the most opaque, conflicted supply chains in the world. And we began in the diamond industry, which arguably has its own shades of grey, black and white in terms of its history, whether it be the Blood Diamonds movie with Leonardo DiCaprio or whether it be to bind itself against the promise of I do's. Yeah, Everledger started in 2015. We're about 110-odd people now around the world with operational centres in Australia, India, Israel, UK, USA, and mainland China. Why do you think it's important to know where things come from, and who do you think wants to know the most? There's a rising curiosity from, as they say, millennials or the next generation, and whether that be linked directly with the climate and environment agenda or whether it just be the curiosity of asking questions about why or how is it that Hollywood blockbuster movies are telling these atrocious stories and is there truth behind the story? And I guess that's really Everledge's purpose is to bring a truthful narrative and allow the product to tell its journey. And as I said, bearing itself back onto that big question about where does something come from, we're also married to understanding where does it go to after it leaves me? And this sort of plays into the larger narrative around waste or the externality of cost that waste is causing against the economy and against the planet. And so the principles of circular economy apply to the platform that we've built as well. And I think it is a question. I often walk into a store and ask myself the question about where does something come from? And up until today, we're really just trusting the brands, you know, someone that a company that might have been in existence for more than 100 years, potentially we've already accepted that they have a social license to operate, but no longer should that just be a given truth. Do you mean that Poland spring water might not come from Poland Springs? <laughs> well, that's true. Exactly right. Nations care as well today. Everledger operates with the Australian government under some nation brands. And one of those is critical minerals for electric vehicle batteries. The other is Australian wool and even Australian pearls. And so this isn't just a question that consumers are asking or millennials. This is a proud nation brand position that countries are now chasing down to enable them to have a right of passage to trade across the world. And what was your personal journey that led you to landing on this problem to devote your professional life to solving? And after that, we can get into the origin story for the company, but maybe just a little bit of context for what led up to Everledger being born. Oh, look, I think pretty close to 50 right now. So I have a patchwork quilt of experience that's seen me in track and trace technologies since the mid 90s and working with RFID, radio frequency identification, which today is probably most well known to many consumers as NFC, sort of intelligent labeling or smart tags 
and everything in Australia I track from cows to kangaroos and the combination of my working life has seen me in various different disciplines of technology. I'm a software engineer but I've also been involved in a diamond and jewellery industry and the overlay of insurance and I guess everything for me has come down to how can we best use technology at the bleeding edge? Is there next generation technologies that could be combined successfully together to solve for a pretty hairy, audacious goal or a hairy, audacious problem? And when we start to front and centre bringing diamonds to the forefront of the industry that we entered into, we knew that bringing traceability and transparency to one of the most opaque industries and ancient industries in the world would prove a point. What came first with the chicken and egg? Was it looking at what's happening with track and trace technology and finding markets to apply it? Or was there something specific about the diamond industry that made you look for how you might solve a particular problem? If you're a great entrepreneur, it's nothing more than just getting the timing right. As I said, if it wasn't for the patchwork quilt of experience that I held over the past 25 years, and I'm a serial entrepreneur, I guess that also translates to being unemployable by virtue of my attitude or sometimes the way I speak and even the way I dress and act. But on a more serious note, There were very real economic reasons and the challenges of industry that intercepted the rising of new and immersive technologies that we know we could combine together. So we built a platform on the blockchain distributed ledger protocols and brought those together with advanced machine vision and AI capabilities to be able to identify a diamond and then, of course, enable the tracking and tracing of that gemstone across the world. So I wouldn't say there was a defining moment, a lightning bolt, you know, too many gins one night in a great bar in London. It was the combination of my skills together with the rise of this emergent white paper, which was Soshi Sakamoto's, Satoshi Nakamoto, I must say, (laughs) sorry, not that is too many gins to get that word wrong. Um, (laughs) Natoshi Sakamoto, that is the reverse engineering of Natoshi, who knows? On a serious note, though, It's when we start to see the emergence of new technologies like blockchain and intercept that with a a problem that exists in the world that hadn't been able to be solved, it wakens the beast within entrepreneurs to do something about it. And when you looked at the diamond industry, you mentioned that it was opaque and that there wasn't a lot of visibility and transparency. Why do you think that was? And also, was the data there and just not being disclosed or did nobody know? This industry is still based on a gentleman's handshake, a chit of paper and a promise to pay. There's very large bourses in the world where diamond tiers and traders come together and trade diamonds in the physicality of space and time. And given that it hasn't undergone a significant transformation with digital tooling and or data related to its trade, we were able to take advantage of that. So in some respects, many parts of the data around the diamond identity and even around the diamond journey existed, but there were technology gaps, different types of technologies that we could apply to bring together that identity gap that didn't exist, where diamonds just simply weren't blind in terms of the paper trail. And when we were able to connect that together, um, and combine, as I said, machine vision, resonant ultrasound, blockchain technologies, a series of these, we were able to bring the truthful story of the object to the forefront. What's an example of a gap that existed with the gentleman's handshake way of doing things that Everledger is now helping to shine the light on? There are many gaps when we think about the entire journey of a diamond, whether it be at the time when it gets captured as it comes out of the ground, 
at the point where it crosses borders, there was a paper-based certification system in place called the Kimberley Process, which is a three-step validation system beyond the track and trace across the supply chain, which effectively shows the journey of the diamond. I'd say the biggest missing piece is the environmental story, the use of water across the manufacturing leap of the supply chain, the carbon sequestering and or carbon footprint that it's leaving behind as the diamond changes hands. And it's the combination of the identity of the diamond with track and trace, as well as advanced calculations in environment is is where Everledger is effectively bringing an entirely new ethical trade platform to the forefront of the world. And the data that you're getting around things like water usage, is that self-reported or how is that data getting collected? We're connecting both man and machine to the platform. And what I mean by that, there are various types of machines that are already connecting, collecting and reporting. And so it's not as though we need an interpretive keyboard dance to be made by data entry people. It's in fact the connections and using the backbone of IoT devices to enable that data to flow directly onto our platform. There are also gemologists, people that are trained professionals by their um, expert eye to understand the identity of a diamond, and they have a yielded opinion on the characteristics of the stone, and we also capture that. So it's a fine balance between some data points are connected directly from machines, others are by the opinion or the expert eye and they're entered into the system. And others, of course, many data points exist already in trade systems or ERP systems or marketplaces, and we connect those via APIs. So what type of customer are you targeting? Everledger wants to track some of the most opaque supply chains in the world. And by virtue of that, we need to understand its origin and where does it go to And where does it end up into the hands of a consumer or someone that is consuming it as a product? But the story doesn't end there. It goes even further afield into that circular economy use, so repurposing, recycling. And so the customers and the users on our platform are everybody in a particular industry in the supply chain, whether it be a mining company, a manufacturer, a grading or certificate laboratory, a consumer itself. And then, of course, when we think about recycling and repurposing, we also see that secondary market movement as well. So it's a pretty broad net that we need to be able to cast. And many, many companies are now looking at provenance. Where does something come from? Traceability, track and trace. We've chosen very specific industries that we're most heavily involved with and interested in, and that's the highly conflicted, largely opaque industries where there's yielded high value or high risk of that supply chain. And you mentioned a wide range of stakeholders. What is the pitch and how similar or different is it from one of those stakeholders to the next? Each have various different challenges and problems to solve, even within one industry. But there's some similarities across many different industries, whether it be counterfeit goods, whether it be double financing of the pipeline, whether it be concerns in supply chain finance in the mid-tier of the pipeline. A lot of these concerns are quite synergistic across many different industries. What we often champion ourselves towards is understanding where provenance, where the identity of an object rather than just the customer plays a role in the risk calibration of a supply chain. And so one prime example is when we start thinking about the fundamentals of KYC, know your customer. It's been in existence for some time. Banks and insurance companies, regulated markets use that as a way to endeavor its understanding of risk. It's been really the backbone for anti-money laundering as a prime example. 
we go one step further to understand the object. So we fundamentally believe that the world's moving more aligned with KYO and KYC coming together. Know your object. And we think it's a knockout punch if you can bring that closer together to a KYC. So the participants of a supply chain, the direct tier one participants, those that handle the physical stone itself, rather than those that are a derivative supply to that industry, for example, like banks and insurers that don't physically handle a diamond, but are a large service entity to it, have a great interest in the work that we're doing because they can't see or understand where the object is. But if they were able to, then there's various risk calibration events they can put towards their own business endeavors. The different inputs that are relevant to map out that supply chain how much involvement do those entities, suppliers, et cetera, need to have for you to get accurate data? Do they need to be bought in or get that data with or without them? They're hardwired. I mean, it's a heavy lift. We're solving one of the hardest problems there is in climate and environment. When we start to consider greenhouse gas emissions, scope one and scope two, whether it be direct or indirect, are largely going to be solved by direct infrastructure change. And so it's a singleized participant that is able to replace, for example, the types of electricity or regenerative stored energy environments on their building. More than 60, 70% of the problem in greenhouse gas emissions is in scope three. And that's the work that we do. You can't get to scope three greenhouse gas emission calculations or reduction if it's not for provenance, understanding the origin of something and the full participant of the supply chain. We began six and a half years ago and we've done incredibly well to represent 30% of the entire world's trade of coloured gemstones and emeralds on the platform and therefore we have the most rich, truthful data connected to the supply chain than anyone else. So therefore we're able to calculate with certainty around scope three greenhouse gas emissions and that isn't an easy task to do. So it's taken the better part of seven years to build a 30% knowledge positioning in an industry. And that's not necessarily an easy job. Is it just a subscription model where the stakeholders that want this data essentially subscribe to monthly access to the platform? Some industries are already heavily bound by certification and the diamond industry is definitely one of them. 81 countries came together to form the Kimberley process and there's a Kimberley certificate that must be adhered to and attached to a diamond as it's mined and as it's crossing borders across the world. And it's that certificate that we're able to enable as one method of transactional trade that we can capture. And so our system is both a per seat license, like a SaaS application, even though we're vertically focused, a BAS, a vertically SaaS applicated. We also have transaction fees, which is based per stone or per gemstone. And so it's for every time a change of ownership occurs, not necessarily just a chain of custody, where that transaction fee is yielded. Now, the total inbound effective nature of that is about 1% of the value of the stone across the entirety of its pipeline uh, or its lifetime is where the constructed transactional value comes to play. You're not only providing visibility, but you're also enabling and facilitating the transactions, essentially a marketplace, it sounds like. It is, but we fundamentally don't get involved with the trade itself. So we're not involved in the payment or the transfer of payment. What we have enabled is an entirely new rich source of data that goes just beyond how long will it take for you to deliver it to me and what's the price I pay. And we've started to see in the last number of years, new participants coming onto the platform 
that are utilising sources of data, whether it be a greenhouse gas emission footprint or a source of origin, as a different way of understanding the suppliers that are doing good while doing well, like doing better for the planet. So it's not our endeavour for us to become a marketplace. In fact, we integrate with marketplaces and there are many in the diamond and gemstone industry that have been here for quite some time, but they don't have the enriched truthful linked live data feeds that we do from industry and so the combining of that together is not just about what is the price am I willing to pay for the diamond or the gemstone or the wool but it's also what's the cost of the planet and so we're able to get the cost of the planet to align to the price to pay. And is the bulk of your revenue to date coming more from subscription than transaction or how does that break down? We're seeing transaction feeds really build over time, and we know that that's a very long-term sustainable position, particularly for items of value where there is a circular economy effect because people want to understand not just only the first-time use of an object, but its second, third, and fourth-time use. Diamonds are traditionally, particularly in the marriage or the luxury goods space, is a one-time purchase for life. Yeah, I would say we're probably 60-odd percent in terms of license fees and 40-odd percent in transaction fees. Out of the stakeholders that you mentioned, where are you seeing the most pickup? Is it one particular kind of customer or is there a long tail? The really exciting question is less about the personas of industry and actually more about the types of companies that are now accelerating through the use of a platform like this or taking the opportunity to rethink their entire brand and value proposition. And we're starting to see acceleration points in certain parts of industry where the entire brand promise is really linked back to that truthful story. And one more recently is Brilliant Earth. It's just become NASDAQ listed and they're absolutely running like a freight train in terms of their growth and the adoption by consumers. And those consumers aren't millennials, right? They're everyday people asking that very conscious question about where something comes from and are making very definitive decisions based on that price to pay and cost to planet. So I think that's the exciting piece that we're seeing People understanding the importance of this data, changing their purchasing habits or asking questions, but entirely new brands are being built. For example, in our textiles industry, we worked on a Web3 brand with Alexander McQueen called MyMCQ, where it reimagined the entirety of that luxury brand based on the principles of what we're able to provide with provenance and the planet and the impact for circular economy. Is it one data set that companies are paying to tap into? Or when you work with companies, do you then tailor your capabilities to get visibility into their efforts specifically? Are you reinventing the wheel with the same assets for each new customer? Or is it build once and then just give people a window to to look into what's already there? The wonderful world of which we're living in is beginning to understand the layers of the onion and the complexities around supply chain data and how that consciously assist businesses in ethical trade, but also helps to answer that very simple question. So as we give a window and an access into that single level data, because there are tier two, three, and four levels of supply chain, we're seeing it layer upon layer upon layer being built. And so therefore the derivatives of data that is coming out of that compounding effect whether it be new suppliers connecting with different forms of manufacturing capabilities that might be yielding an entirely different greenhouse gas footprint, we're seeing that drive the complexity of our data in such a way where we're needing to marry it with artificial intelligence and really smart algorithms to 
be able to profile nearly to a certain extent the types of data that people want to see. So it's becoming quite intuitive in terms of how that data is being delivered or how that data is being sourced. Is A or the primary use case that I'm a company that makes products and I want to be able to essentially certify that my products bring light to my processes and I've historically been in the dark or had no way to beautifully display. So by working with you, it essentially almost gives an x-ray into my supply chain so that I understand better, it can inform my decision-making and that of my team, and our customers can see, and we're going to essentially build in public in a way that brands hadn't either been able to or hadn't chosen to or both do historically so that there's more trust and transparency than ever before. Absolutely. You hit the nail completely on the head. Because I wasn't confident with that. I was just testing my testing if I got it. Yeah, you got it in one. I mean, the simplistic nature of our say that the story about where does something come from resonates with the simplicity of those questions that we all ask quietly in our mind or some that are more bold that verbalize it. But then banks and insurers are also needing more than just the KYC element to understand who are the registered directors of a company. They want to understand the flow of trade. And I think that there's a whole nother derivative in terms of consumers of the platform. So what is it that brands are actually claiming if they do incorporate this into their outward messaging? What are they saying and how does that manifest? So is it like an Intel inside from a certification standpoint, or is there certain data that they're disclosing that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to disclose? What is it they feel their customers are getting at and how is that positioned to them? Now, let's come back to the diamond and gemstone example. There was no such thing as showing the origin of the stone, of which country it was mined from, let alone how it traversed across the world and where it was manufactured. So these are entirely new data sets that are now being brought to the forefront and directed directly into retail for consumers to see and to interact with. There are other parts that the industry has already defined in terms of the four C's of a diamond. And now we're going one step further in showing the greenhouse gas emission. So the existing providers of industry like certification and laboratory houses are able to now look at the greenhouse gas effect of a gemstone. And a pearl is very different to a diamond is very different to an emerald. And they all have incredibly vast ways upon which they traverse across the world, but also the processes that yield that greenhouse gas emission footprint is very different too. And in terms of the data that you are giving visibility to, so you mentioned GHGs, what are the other key data sets that the customers get access to and are able to provide access to to their customers? Definitely origin of where something comes from, greenhouse gas emissions and the footprint and sequestering carbon in some gemstones, which is a pretty exciting next generation work that we're bringing out early next year in pearls as a prime example, where pearls sequesters carbon. They're the guardians of the ocean. So they're the cleaning mollusk that ensures that we have a healthy ocean and they're sequestering it. So they are a technology like a tree is, which is pretty exciting, a very vastly different The other is, of course, um, in critical minerals, the work that we do there yields upon air quality beyond greenhouse gas emissions with carbon is methane. It's another fast follower, which we're able to start to see and report on. And also use of water. Uh, Being from Australia, we're a drought-ridden nation, and we have to make very serious decisions about how we're utilising water and how, of course, we're recycling it. So where does this fit in versus the more general carbon accounting platforms, the the normatives, the watersheds, the Sinai's, there's many of them, as you know. 
these initiatives are great initiatives to start with, but they're spend-based calculators on estimations. They're not at scope three. They're not in the supply chain as deep as we are at the point of origin when it was first instantiated, mined, farmed, and tracking it across the world. They're doing aggregated spend-based calculators or estimators. And the world, not all supply chains will be able to have as much accuracy as we are forming. But the diamond and gemstone industry is hyper-consolidated in that there's only a handful of countries that mine. There's only 10 major mining companies in the world that mine diamonds. And then, you know, we have one two major locations in the world where it's cut and polished in terms of diamond manufacturing in India and in Antwerp and its small amount in Israel. And so the hyper-consolidation of a supply chain enables us to be able to get this scope three level calculator with more accuracy in certain industries faster than others. That same accuracy would be very difficult to achieve well before 2050 in, say, the food supply chain as a prime example, or even some of the textile supply chains because it doesn't have the hyper-consolidation that other industries do. The big incumbents, whether it's the countries themselves or the miners or the De Beers of the world, how much interaction do you have with them and what do they think of Everledger? Well, firstly, from a government's perspective of the world, Australia has a mandate for the track and trace of critical minerals. And of course, Australia is the largest producer of lithium and we know where the story is going in terms of acceleration around electric vehicle batteries. So national traceability programs are starting to awaken the minds of governments. I speak about Australia because I'm from Australia, but it's not limited to Australia. Russia is the largest producer of diamonds in the world and has been for some time, and they too have had national traceability programs in place with their major GDP commodities, and so diamonds being one of those as well. You talk about De Beers. De Beers has a very well-positioned, blockchain-enabled, full traceability, bringing origin to the forefront with diamond traceability, and that didn't exist when Everledger started, and our engagement with them has been long-standing since 2016. So, you know, we are seeing the awakening of industry alongside governments and the careful positioning and repositioning of brand, whether that be the nation brand or whether that even be the luxury goods brands of retailers that are well known to consumers. Where do the big consulting firms that do supply chain consulting, as an example, fit into all of this? Do they come up much in your travels? Oh, they love to call and there's no doubt about it. They also love to understand what we do deeply. We don't have any direct aligned relationships with the big consulting companies. In fact, if anything, the critical minerals uh, work with the Australian government was awarded to us over other consulting companies because it's about real software and they're not technology companies. So ultimately, we can consult as much as we want and I think the world is starting to move well beyond PowerPoints and Google Slides to solve the problem of carbon, climate and environment. And we need technology to be able to connect of the networks to be born. And that's going to come out of companies and entrepreneurs like us that have the ability to be a bit speedboat-like in terms of bringing us alongside the large incumbents that have the data or the industry participants that are effectively digging holes and shipping dirt. How do you sell? Is it a, a direct model, inside, outside, channel? How, how are you actually taking this solution to market? Because we've chosen very particular industries where we hold deep expertise, diamonds, gemstones, Australian wool, Australian critical minerals is a prime example. We have a direct model. So we're not engaged in using the big 
consulting firms to leverage our ways through. If anything, actually, the big consulting firms do us a great favor by delivering a board level strategy of which people need to execute against and therefore they can start plugging into the platform that we've created. Never say never, maybe in the future we'll think about channel strategy, but right now we've got more than we can chew. What functional area are you typically selling into and how do they justify the budget? Is it out of an existing pool? And if so, which one? Or are they creating a a new category from which to find the funding for this initiative? Given 2015 to 2017 was relatively early, early for enterprise blockchain applications, there was a fair engagement then with the chief technology officer or innovation as a prime example. And parts of that were pilots and capex spend that was really outside of operations. But Today, when we have such an enriched process of understanding and a maturity in the blockchain uh, distributed ledger protocols, it's less about those capex check sizes and now it's purely by license. Um, The new purchasing officers that have really come in, CIOs are very much front and centre. Chief procurement officers is another one. So someone who is actually procuring goods and services needs to be able to have a clean, conscious supply chain. And the third purchasing officer that we see in engagement is the chief sustainability officer or the responsibility officer. And we're starting to see those migrate to the forefront of decision makers. And is it primarily like a branding and trust story or are there savings involved or performance improvements or what's the story that's really hooking them? In some of our industries, we've seen consumers willing to pay more, knowing and understanding the entire story of a highly conflicted supply chain. And so by virtue of that, you're able to economically model based on an increased GP gross gross margin. We're also seeing as well that those particular gemstones move faster through the supply chain because consumers are willing to make that decision with more trust enablement. So in an environment where there's consignment stock and particularly it's you know on a forward trade in terms of the trade days and the amount, then it's to the advantage of the industry as a whole to bring technologies like this to the forefront because people are paying more for it and they're making faster decisions to get it. Whether that will become the norm in five years' time, where pretty much we think provenance will be inbuilt into every object. It's a bit like when we think about calories on the label of food. I think carbon will be the next calories. It'll just be on the label of everything that we buy or consume. In terms of digital transformation, we're also able to see the replacement of paper into a fully digital environment is pretty much a zero-sum game as well. So, And that's not including the environmental hazard or the footprint that is left behind with paper across the supply chain. That's purely just then inefficiency in industry is able to justify the cost. In 2015, 2014, when blockchain was very early, it was a really difficult technology to be able to build with robustness uh, and at scale. And it was quite an expensive technology. But today you can equate it to an equivalency of any other web-based technologies. And I'm not talking about a permissioned cryptocurrency ledger where you have to be considered in the volatility of cryptocurrency for gas fees. But I'm talking about an enterprise environment, which is no dissimilar to any other sort of web-based implementation. So by virtue of that, we're often seeing a rationalization of the technology stack being made and there's savings to be made as a part of that. The things that you're doing and the value that you're providing, is that reliant on blockchain or is there a world where it could be done without? And if not, what is it about blockchain that makes it essential as an enabler? 
there are ways and there are companies that provide a centralised, highly vulnerable, centralised store of information based on a registry and or an identity of an object. We certainly see the power in distributed ledger technologies, the evolution over time of peer-to-peer trading, what's happening in the space with Web3 and NFTs combining with NFCs, that physical digital link. And we fundamentally believe that blockchain is the next generation of the internet and it's here to stay. We did choose an environment where we had a centralised store. I'm not sure that the entirety of the incumbents of industry would trust a single store of truth, but certainly a network that is able to be connected where everyone is in control, but no one person is in control of the end result is pretty much where the world is moving and we seem to be in the right place at the right time. And does that mean that there'll be one network, meaning that it will be a network that's provided by a private company like an Everledger? Because if it is a network, but it's an Everledger network, isn't it still putting your trust in one company? I don't think it's going to be one network. I think it might be one protocol and those protocols will be driven out by the W3C and the international standards that are that are moving. So we're already seeing that there are multiple networks that exist in the diamond industry and colour gemstone industry and textiles. And it's the connectivity of that together through a data exchange environment that helps to bring the solution to the world. So it's not really one winner takes all. I think we looked at those models already, whether it be Facebook, Google or the others. And I think that the world is slowly bringing themselves back into a distributed sense of power. And we've talked about getting visibility and disclosing that visibility to end consumers as well. Once you have the visibility, does Everledger get involved at all in terms of improving the data or just disclosing the data? Well, I guess this is the big question that's on the minds of many right now, and that is we have a linear economy and that once it's built and it's priced and it's bought, it effectively doesn't improve. It ends up in the bin or in landfill. And the major kind of concern that many people have is that the externality of cost of that single life or single use ends with exactly that. The world is now looking at how can we repurpose, recycle, and even upcycle parts of the material supply chain And so if there is a second endeavour to the value of life uh, of an object or of a material base, then Everledger certainly does get involved because we are seeing the waste from electronics as a prime example. You know, Dell Computing a number of years ago stripped back a significant amount of their metals that was then repurposed and reused into the jewellery supply chain. And we see that and we add value to it through that process of regeneration. Uh, And so I would say, yeah, there is a story and we are involved because we actively and fundamentally believe that the linear economy is not sustainable and we do need to move to a regenerative environment where we are consistently looking at and adding value. We shouldn't be thinking about supply chains. We should be transforming it into value chains. And by virtue of that, it's a continuous loop. And is that largely part of the future vision and aspirational or is the making improvements around the data something that is manifesting today with real customers? Mate, that was two years ago. So it's in the scale. Um, Dell computing is very real. They're entirely large circular economy precincts that reside in our technology that take the waste out of retail and repurpose them into new furniture items as a prime example. So no, it's a very, it's a very, very real 
implementation uplift that's occurring right today. Great. So if you fast forward, let's say 10 years and Everledger is successful beyond your wildest dreams, what have you achieved as a company and what have you achieved for the world? I'd imagine, look, we wouldn't be talking about blockchain because it would be ubiquitous and will just become the protocol of the web and many of us in terms of looking at our wallets and our digital vaults would just be driven by those protocols. So it's not going to be the technology of the month. In fact, it's not even going to be NFTs won't be the word of the year. And the same too with the circular economy. We won't be thinking about that in an economic construct because it will just be the economy. And so Everledger is probably one of the larger providers of transparency in hyper-opaque supply chains where we fundamentally believe that transformation is the key to value. And you know, who knows if we can start to reverse parts of the climate environment disasters that are around us or make accountable those uh, or even give visibility to parts of those atrocities, then we've already done well. Great. And as you think about other opaque areas, you mentioned that you're particularly experienced and well-connected in diamonds, which was one of the reasons to start there. How much of your infrastructure, expertise, DNA in the company is transferable to other sectors and how much would be reinventing the wheel? The biggest sector we're wholly involved with now, we began a year after Everledger started in 2016, was um, enabling the battery passport, uh, you know, choosing how we might bring critical mineral traceability to the forefront, lithium, nickel, cobalt as a prime example, and then linking that to the battery itself, uh, not only in its first life, but its primary and secondary life. That work has taken some significant acceleration forward, whether you look at Boris Johnson bringing half a decade forward for electric vehicle adoption in the UK. The European Union now has a battery passport policy that is bringing towards the entirety of the EU, which looks at extended producer responsibilities. And it says, even though you mightn't be the manufacturer of the battery, The OEM of the car, whether it be Ford, BMW, Audi, they have an extended producer responsibility to know and understand the battery and its recycling and repurposing. So there's a mass acceleration underway in that automotive space, but also in the critical mineral space. We saw it in 2016, we committed to it and we're well positioned for it now. And we think that that's going to be an industry that will keep us incredibly busy for the next 10 to 20 years. When we consider the breadth of critical minerals and the change up of what is defined as critical and the existing geopolitical tensions globally in terms of the battery manufacturing and the manufacturing sector as a whole, we understand the new car brands beyond Tesla are coming to the market to be able to fulfill the needs of the nations. And we were able to, in six short months, take the platform that was wholly designed for diamonds and bring it across and place it into the hands of Ford, Ford Motors for their electric vehicle battery traceability and recycling. And now about nine months in the committed energy for the Australian government for critical mineral traceability. What are the key priorities for the company over, say, the next 12 or 24 months? Critical minerals, critical minerals, critical minerals. I mean, I think there's a number of governments where that's the key focus for them as well. It's securing that pipeline and enabling very clean, green and uplift of offtake agreements and knowing ultimately where that material base is going and how do they either get it back to recycle it 
or how do we enable the value to be created when it does leave the shores? We only have so much life left in our mines. And the prime example in Australia is we had the Argyle mine with pink diamonds and we don't mine them anymore because there's none left. Uh, And the same tragedy could occur in various parts of the world with the life of mine. And so the race is on for rare earths, as they say. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your progress and the progress of cleaning up these supply chains in general, what would you change and how would you change it? Be delighted if we could accelerate synthetic biology in such a way where we weren't reliant on the natural mining extraction and having to build out this whole urban mining platform of sleep recycling, you know, being able to harvest value from waste. If we were able to harvest synthetic biology in such a way where there were different mechanisms where we could power the world, then that would be brilliant. We're starting to see that in the food sector already when we think about synthetic biology being created for our food sector, but in the industrialized, highly industrialized supply chains where we're still reliant on fossil fuels and reliant on our natural resources, that is a harder problem to solve. In one respect, I wish Everledger wasn't really needed, but the reality is we are. So we're here to keep going until we bring a light to the dark. And for anyone listening that's inspired by your work, who do you want to hear from? Where do you need help? Firstly, everyone is a consumer in various parts of the world, right? Or different decisions in your life and the decisions that you make. So just ask the question next time you walk into a front door. And if you happen to be walking in to buy a diamond ring, then definitely ask where it comes from because the industry can tell you and they will tell you. We're growing as most businesses are and definitely we have a growth mindset as an entrepreneur. So reach out. You know, I'm highly contactable through Twitter and LinkedIn and our team stretches across six countries in the world. So if you're curious to know more or if you deliberately have a question that needs to be asked, we're around. Amazing. And Leanne, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Oh, I don't know. I'm always caught on questions like that. I really don't have much to (laughs) say, to be honest. You know, it's an important part of the time in the world to be able to just deliberately commit to something. And if it happens to be a big idea, don't be fearful because there are many entrepreneurs out there that have got your back and that putting the wind in your sails. So just go for it, I reckon. Well, you did actually have something to say. That was a fantastic point to end on. (laughs) Look at that. Got a face for radio, mate. Who knows? (laughs) Leanne, thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you and the whole Everledger team. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.